A kid comes to church all his life, but he's in a church where the people are untaught. And he comes to dad and mom and says, help me. You know, my professor in high school says the Bible is not true. My college professor says Jesus is just a man. What do I do? How do I handle this? And dad and mom say, I don't know. I've only been going to church for 25 years. That's why we are to teach the word of God. Paul didn't say to Timothy, oh, Timothy, go out and get excited, get pumped up, or go out and hear a super challenging motivational speaker. Paul never said that to Timothy. He said, Timothy, study, 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 and then preach, 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 and then obey what you teach that men might follow your example, and then they will know God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Debate in the Midst of the Feast, in John chapter 7, verses 14 through 36. So far in our study, Pastor Carl has outlined the debate over his teaching in verses 14 through 24, and the debate over his origin in verses 25 through 31. Before we conclude today, we will see the debate over his departure in verses 32 through 36. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he concludes. You know, one of the favorite verses in the sinner's Bible, there's three, you know, Jesus drank wine and God helps those who help themselves and judge not lest you be judged. They love that verse. Judge not lest you be judged. You talk about that. Oh, judge not lest you be judged. Well, you read that verse in its context in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus will go on to say to exercise discernment. You don't cast your pearl before swine. So there's some kind of judgment that God allows. I'm not judging someone to say that adultery is wrong. Drunkenness is sin. Homosexuality is a perversion because God has already made that judgment. And here Jesus plainly says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He's telling them not to judge with a superficial criteria. They had wrongfully judged him by misapplying the word of God. That's what this debate is all about. How is this man learned, having never been educated? They're debating over the word of God. They're debating over the person of Christ when what they really need to be thinking about is the way they handle Scripture because the way they handle Scripture is a contradiction in terms. If God would allow a little baby to be circumcised, the spirit of the law is very clear. He'd allow a man to be completely healed on that day. Now, that's the debate over his teaching. Now, it comes to the next level. We move now from the de debate over his teaching to the debate over his origin. Notice verse 25. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Now, as you read through this chapter, there's a number of different groups throughout this chapter. There are the Jews, as they're called, mentioned in verse 2, verse 11, verse 15. Remember who the Jews were? Who were the Jews? Yeah, the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders. He's not using it just to refer to all Hebrew people, but to a specific group, a subset, namely the Pharisees. There's also mentioned in this chapter the multitude. If you have the new New American Standard, I think it renders it the crowd uh, who are here for the feast. 
Uh, they're first mentioned uh, in verse 20. But then in verse 25, you come to those who are called the people of Jerusalem. They knew about this plot against the Lord Jesus. It didn't originate with them. It originated with their leaders. And so the question by this Jerusalem group of people, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Answer, yes. It expects a yes answer in the original. So they're confused. They're thinking, wait a minute. This is the one they want to knock off. This is the one they want to kill. If this is the one they want to kill, why aren't they doing something? In fact, they're listening to him. Notice. And look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. They're impressed that he is speaking openly, knowing that they had a plan to kill him. And yet, they ask, the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? In essence, they're saying, look, if these rulers are listening to him speak, these ones who have a plan to kill him, it's well known, why aren't they doing something? Is it possible that they think he's the Messiah? And of course, they immediately dismiss it. It implies again a no answer. And further in verse 30, 27, it says, However, we know this, where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. He can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. Now, the reason they dismiss that he could be the Christ is because they know, number one, he's from Nazareth. And a tradition had developed in this day that while the Jews knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. They believed that during his whole earthly life, he would be hidden, and then suddenly, dramatically, he would come to the temple. So they thought, well, we know where he's from. He's been in Nazareth for three decades. He's just the village carpenter. He can't be the Christ. But they had their facts all wrong. Number one, he wasn't from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And number two, in one sense, God had hidden them right under their own noses in the least likely of all places that the Christ would come, from Hicksville, from this Roman garrison town, a town where people were despised from Nazareth. And he had come to the temple on this occasion. Look at verse 28. He tries to help them to understand. Jesus, therefore, cried out. It's a verb that means he shouted with a loud voice, he yelled at them. He cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I'm from. Now take that phrase for a second. You both know me and you know where I'm from. And turn over a page to chapter 8 and verse 19. I don't have a slide on this. But if you read 8 and 19, it seems contradictory. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So on the one hand, he says, you both know me, you know where I'm from. Here in 728 and in 819, he says, you don't know me. Well, which is it? Well, again, the liberals who, Peter said, distort the scriptures to their own destruction. They say, a contradiction in the Bible. But please understand, the construction of verse 28 indicates that the Lord is speaking with a deep sense of irony. In some of the paraphrased translation, it will bring this out. J.B. Phillips, who wrote a superb paraphrase of the New Testament in the 1950s, translates it in this way. So you know me and you know where I'm from? Sarcastically? Now, this is true of many people today. Think about it. All over America, people say, oh, I know the Lord. You know Jesus? You say, yeah, I know Jesus is my Savior. I go to church. But do you really know him? See, that's the sense here. 
88% of America, according to that ABC poll, identify with Christianity in some way, shape, or form. But I doubt 88% of America really knows the Lord. Oh, they say they know God, but do you really know him? Notice he says, he puts it into plain English, I have not come to myself, but he... I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you don't know. There it is. You don't really know him. He's making it clear my teachings didn't originate from myself, nor did my mission originate from myself. He said, I've not come of myself. Why? Because I'm sent. You might want to circle that word sent. Jesus was not just born into this world. He was sent into this world. He who sent me is true, and you don't know him. Now, he's not saying it in sarcasm, but in plain English, you don't know God. And why? Because verse 17 indicates they weren't willing to do his will, as he just illustrated with the illustration of circumcision. I know him, verse 29, because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't knock him off. Because he's working on a divine timetable. By the way, there's a truth there for you. You know you're immortal if you're walking with God. Nobody can take your life. No weapon formed against you can stand, the Bible says, if you're walking with God until God decides that it's to be the last day of your life. Now, you say, what if I'm not walking with God? Well, Romans 8.28 is a promise for the one who is actively loving the Lord. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are actively obeying Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And, of course, God can pick up the mess that we've made and begin to make that verse a reality all over again. But nonetheless, they wanted to seize Him, but nothing could happen to Him until the Father destined for Him to die. Verse 31. But many of the multitudes believed in Him, and they were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Many in that multitude were going around saying, look it, when the Christ shall come, when Messiah comes, he won't do more signs and miracles than this one has done, will he? Implied answer, no. Implication, he's got to be the Messiah. No one else can do these miracles on the level and of the type. He has got to be the Christ. So what did they do? They believed. Now, of course, the response of many of these Jewish people created a real problem among the leadership. Notice, if you will, verse 32, a number get embittered. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax in some people's lives. Some people get hardened over truth. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now, the Pharisees were afraid because their ignorance had been blasted, their wisdom had been challenged, their security had been attacked, their religion had been undermined, their power, they were losing it. So what do they do? The Pharisees, remember there's about 6,000 of them, they're the ruling religious body, they're the legalists of the day, and the chief priests, notice it's in the plural. Now, there was one chief priest or one high priest in Israel. But we're living at a time when Rome basically was running the Jewish people. They selected their own chief priests, typically corrupted men. 
And so even after a man stepped down from being the high priest, he was allowed to retain that title. And the chief priest came from a group of people called Sadducees. The Pharisees were the legalists. The Sadducees were the liberals. We're told in the Bible that they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They basically wrote off the supernatural. And typically, these two groups would knock heads. On one occasion, Paul's in deep trouble. They arrested him. He comes into this court. He's got Pharisees and Sadducees. And so what Paul does is he brings up a statement that he knows is going to create an argument. They start fighting with themselves and they forget all about the Apostle Paul. In either case, these were strange bedfellows. But because there was a common hatred, a common cause to get rid of this one who is usurping their power, they get the temple police to go get him. Now the tension is building. They've debated over his teachings. They've debated over his origins. Notice now they debate over his departure. Verse 33. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Now the Lord knew his time was short. He says in essence, there's coming time you won't have to put up with me any longer. Now, how did he know that? Number one, he's the omniscient God. He knows the day he's going to die. Number two, he knows the scriptures. Those of you who have studied that marvelous 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, six and a half centuries before it happens, predicts the exact week Messiah will die. Six and a half centuries before, he gives this incredible prophecy of when the Messiah is going to die. And so Jesus said, I'm just with you for a little while longer. You don't got too much more time to put up with me. He knew that he was going to go back to heaven. And he says in verse 34, you shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am going, you cannot come. Now, if their unbelief made it difficult while Jesus was physically present on the earth for them to come and believe in him, oh, watch what would happen when he was gone. So the Jews, not really understanding what he's saying, they said to one another, verse 35, where does this man, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He's not intending, this is a slam here, He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Where could he possibly go? They suggest one possibility. Maybe he's going to the dispersion. What's the dispersion? Well, diaspora, spread seed. Remember, after the Jews were taken away, the kingdom in the Old Testament split. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The ten tribes were taken away by the Assyrians. The two southern tribes, known as Judah, were taken away by the Babylonians. And so most of the Jewish people lived outside of Palestine. Now there came a time when God worked in the king's heart, in Cyrus's heart, and he moved him to write a proclamation where the Jews in Daniel's day later could be released and come back to live in Jerusalem. And so the king makes that proclamation, and some come back under three returns, but most of them never come back. Life was just too good out of Palestine. There are 16 million Jews in the world today. Not that many Jewish people, really, are there. And yet, they are the center of attention week after week after week. This small group of people are still the focus of the world. And most of those Jews do not live in Israel. They live outside of Palestine. 
There's coming a day, however, when the Bible says God will gather the believing Jews from the four corners of the world and he'll bring them back into the promised land. But nonetheless, a bunch of the Jews were living outside of Palestine in Christ's day because life was good out there. They didn't want to come back. So they think, ah, oh, they must be going to the dispersion. You know, those non-committed Jews who never came back. Or maybe, oh, maybe he'll be so hard up for an audience, he'll go preach to the Greeks, to the pagan Gentiles. That's what they're reasoning here. What is this statement? Verse 36, that he said, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Whether they knew it or not, they were literally speaking a word of prophecy. Because what they thought Jesus was going to do in their sarcasm, he did precisely that. After he died, was buried, risen from the dead, 40 days later ascended, 10 days later at Pentecost, sent the Spirit of God and the church became alive. What did they do in Acts 1 through 7? They preached to the Jews. Everyone converted in Acts 1 through 7 is a Jew. But then, because of persecution that came upon the church, they were dispersed through Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so Acts 8 through 28 is the Jewish converts going and taking the gospel, first typically in the synagogues, because Jesus said to the Jew first and then to the Greek, because God had made promises to the Jews concerning the Messiah, and God wanted the Jewish people to know that he keeps his word, that he's not an Indian giver. And so they would go and they would preach to the Jew, and when they wouldn't listen, where'd they go? To the Greek, to the pagans. So what kind of talk is this? It's nonsense to them. They're confused, they're divided, some believing, but most mocking, the Son of God. Now let me make three applications as we close our time this morning. Three timeless lessons from this portion of Scripture for those of us living today. Number one, mark it down well. To know certain facts about God externally is not the same as knowing God internally. You can know a lot of information about God without knowing God personally. We live in a culture where Jesus Christ is a byword. Everybody knows Jesus. But nobody seems to really know him. Millions of people in America call Jesus Lord, but they don't obey him. Churches everywhere, Bibles everywhere. The problem persists, of course, not just outside the church, but even in the church, in the body of Christ. I mean, think about it. There are some who know the Lord in terms of salvation, but they've never really grown in maturity in their knowledge of him. A few years ago at a National Sunday School convention, Extensive research showed that one of the top three reasons that young people were jettisoning Bible-believing church is because when they came to a spiritual crisis in their life, no one could answer their questions. A kid comes to church all his life, but he's in a church where the people are untaught, and he comes to dad and mom and says, help me. You know, my professor in high school says the Bible is not true. My college professor says Jesus is just a man. What do I do? How do I handle this? And dad and mom say, I don't know. I've only been going to church for 25 years. That's why we are to teach the word of God. 
Paul didn't say to Timothy, oh, Timothy, go out and get excited, get pumped up, or go out and hear a super challenging motivational speaker. Paul never said that to Timothy. He said, Timothy, study, 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 and then preach, 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 and then obey what you teach that men might follow your example, and then they will know God like they ought to, and your joy will be made full. And God will reveal himself to you. So please understand, Christian or non-Christian, just knowing a lot of facts about God doesn't mean that you really know God. Secondly, if you are ever going to know God, you must be willing to obey God. If you're ever going to know God, you must be willing to obey God. When I meet these people whose hearts have become so darkened they say, well, I don't know if there's a God. I know they've got a moral problem. Now, it may be that they're not living in adultery or, you know, a drunkard, or something, but they can still have a moral problem of the will where they're not willing to obey God. We went to Dallas last week, and I don't know about you, but I pray on a regular basis. God, give me an opportunity. Open a door that I would have to share the gospel with someone. You know, it's funny, every time I get on an airplane, the God tends to put me next to a pagan. Well, you know, we're going to Dallas, and, you know, my wife thought she had the seats all arranged, we'd be all together. Well, there was three members of my family on the other side of the aisle, and then this lady next to me. And, of course, I'm tired. I was exhausted when I left, and I really wanted to sleep. And I said, Lord, if you want me to talk to this lady, I'm open, I'm available. Five minutes later, we're into a conversation about the gospel. Now, she is going to a very large Methodist church in Columbia, South Carolina. Interestingly, as we talked and I asked her questions about her church, they have taken the methodology of the seeker-sensitive movement, and they've grown a very big church. She said, well, I've got a very important question for you, Pastor. I said, what's that? We have a debate going on in our church. It's about ready right now to split our church whether or not you have to be born again. What do you think? Well, I set her straight, I promise you. <laughs> in fact, I gave her this week three videos, three DVDs, that this morning she said they were going to watch the first one in their Sunday school class. What must you do to be saved? Jesus said it three times over. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It's not an option. But why is it that you can have people in a church like that who are questioning whether or not it is necessary to be born again. Because very often you have leadership and people in that church who are not willing to do the Father's will. And if you're not willing to do the Father's will, you will never know whether the teaching that Jesus gives is really from God. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Oh, there's a lot of people who think they know God, but someday they will hear from him, I never knew you, depart from me. There's a third principle that I am reminded of from these verses of Scripture, and I am reminded how important it is to seek the Lord while he can be found. Seek the Lord while he can be found. We read in verse 34, you shall seek me and you shall not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. 
Jesus is saying the exact same thing Isaiah said. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't delay. Don't harden your hearts. I'll never forget when I read the biography of D.L. Moody, the Billy Graham of the 19th century, who preached on one night to thousands of people. He says, I want you to all go home and think about what I've said tonight and come back tomorrow ready to make a decision. And that night the Chicago fire came and 50% of the people in that hall were killed. Moody said that was the last time I would ever people tell people to go home and to think about it. Don't delay because a day will come when you want to seek God, but you will not be able to find him. Oh, you sit here and you say, oh, I think what Pastor Brogy is saying is true. Maybe I ought to give my life to Jesus Christ and become a Christian. And I meet you 10 years later. Maybe what Pastor Brogy is saying is true. Maybe I ought to give my life to Christ. And you never do it because you have come to the point where you can no longer find the Lord. Jesus will speak of this very real possibility in the lives of some people. And that's why God exhorts us today is the day to be saved. Don't harden your heart. Let's stand together for prayer. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I wonder why don't you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Father, I thank you today for this opportunity to open your holy word I thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for someone who's here who's never really trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are uncertain that if this were their last day upon the earth, that they would go to heaven. Friend, I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ left heaven, became a man, and in his own body on the cross took all of your sin. He didn't die for some of it or most of it, but all of it. He saw everything that you would ever do in this life. And he was punished on that cross for that sin. And then God raised him from the dead so that he can say, whoever, that means you, whoever will call upon his name will be saved. I wonder how many are here this morning who can say, Pastor, I know I'm saved. There's not a doubt in my mind that I am saved. Furthermore, as Jesus commanded, I've made it public, I've been baptized, and I am a member of a New Testament church. If you could say that, would you raise your hand? All right, put them down. Now, dozens of you couldn't raise your hand this morning. And maybe because you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to give you the opportunity. God says today is the day to be saved. He couldn't say that if it were earned, but it's not earned. The Bible says if you could be saved by deeds, Christ died in vain. Christ paid your debt, a debt that you can never satisfy God unless you try to pay it in hell. He paid it in full. It's the gift of God, not of works. And I wonder in simple faith, like a child, if you would say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you've saved me, I will make it public. I will do what your word says. I will be baptized as a believer, and I will become a member of a New Testament church. Now, Father, I thank you for the principles that are here, not just for the unbeliever, but for the Christian. That as we are continually willing to do your will, that you open up new truth to us, that our relationship with you deepens and broadens. 
And you disclose yourself to us. Help us never to become so smug that just because our names are written in heaven, that everything is okay. If there be any hurtful way in us, help us to repent and to turn from it and allow you to be king enthroned in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 022. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.